I'm now call to order the special board meeting of the District School Board of Collier County in the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Administrative Center boardroom. So what is this meeting about? It's about textbooks, books filled with Marxist, communist, racially divisive ideologies. This critical race theory urges intolerance of all human beings that have been created in the image of God. I'll be damned if I will allow a Marxist revolution to take place in this country. And we need to reject our children even being taught it. Critical race theory says every white person is a racist. Critical race theory says America is fundamentally racist and irredeemably racist. Critical race theory seeks to turn us against each other. And if someone has a different color skin, seeks to make us hate that person. And let me tell you right now, critical race theory is bigoted, it is a lie, and it is every bit as racist as the Klansmen in white sheets. We need a Republican Congress to ban critical race theory. You know, I had it banned through executive order. That was former President Trump at a rally in Ohio last night. His comments come as at least 25 states introduce legislation to limit how public school teachers can talk about issues of race and sexism in the classroom. This is Ken Fiedernick, the host of Courageous Conversations about our schools. That report from CBS Weekend News was from June 2021. By April 2022, the number of states and school districts banning critical race theory or restricting what teachers can talk about regarding race and racism had skyrocketed. In this episode, rather than talk about what critical race theory means and whether it should be taught in schools, we decided to come at the issue with this question. How should students learn about race and racism? Our guests include parents, educators, and concerned citizens. Some are conservative and some are liberal. So, okay, let's meet our guests. Curtis, let's uh, start with you. I'm Curtis Clough, uh, Superintendent Hagerman Schools, and I reside in Artesia, New Mexico. Uh, thank you, Curtis. Uh, Paul, how about you? I am Paul Guessing. I run a policy research think tank that deals heavily with education policy, also in New Mexico, called the Rio Grande Foundation. We're in Albuquerque, though. Uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, Emily? I live in uh, in Los Angeles, California, and I teach in uh, Pico Rivera, which is just a suburb not too far outside of LA County. I teach uh, U.S. History and Ethnic Studies in, at high school, El Rancho High School in Pico Rivera. Emily, thank you. And, uh, and Ty? I'm Ty. I am a director over uh, medical facilities, and I'm a mentor and youth advocate. Uh, great, Ty. And we have one more teacher who uh, I think will be joining us. Hi, my name is Lakeisha Patterson. I'm a third grade ELA teacher. Um, I reside in Houston, Texas, and I teach in Pasadena. As you will hear in just a moment, this isn't going to be a debate. There won't be any winners or losers. As with all of our courageous conversations, we are going to see what happens when we lower the volume, follow some simple conversation agreements, like not interrupting, being curious and respectful, not speaking longer than the time allotted, and then really listen to one another and reflect on some questions that lie at the heart of the culture wars. I hope you'll stay tuned in all the way to the end of the conversation, because you'll hear something happen among my guests that's pretty amazing. Okay, to help set the tone and to bring a little humanity to the conversation, 
we started by sharing some personal memories about school, ones that had a positive impact on us, like the one Ty Smith shared about teachers who cared about his overall well-being at a time when Ty and his siblings' parents weren't around much at home to take care of them. I also asked people to say what they had experienced or witnessed in terms of racism themselves. Everyone had a story to share, although Ty, the 40-year-old African-American father, had this surprising response. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, the racism that I've experienced, I mean, I'm 40 years old, the racism that I experienced, it actually has come from my own <laughs> my own people. So mm -hmm. I know it might be hard for people to understand that, but no, I've never had any white person ever display any type of racism or anything like that towards me. So when I go around, and I talk about things like this, I get, I, people get upset. So I've been called Uncle Tom, um, tap dancer for the white man. I've been called all these things all because I question certain things. Now I've been taught and was told from ghettos and, you know, projects that I grew up in that white people are racist or they're out there to get me. And I was the type of kid that I thought so much. I, my, I, I get told this all the time. You think too much, you talk too much. You ask too many questions. So I will go out and I will try to seek that out. Where is it at? Where is it at? And like I said, unfortunately, I just never encountered any white person that ever called me the N-word or ever displayed any type of hatred towards me. But then yet, if I go and I tell people back in the neighborhoods that I grew up in when I was a kid that, hey, my teacher is white or, hey, my coach is white or, hey, the people in that school program, they're white and they seem to be helping me for it. Oh, you just see there, you tap dancing for them white folks, you. And a lot of people don't even know that. A lot of people, mm. well, no, they know it, but a lot of people are scared to actually voice it. I'm at a point to where I, I, I never cared. I mean, the truth is the truth and I, I didn't get it, so no. In contrast to Ty Smith's experience, this is what Lakeisha Patterson, an African-American mother and third grade teacher from Texas shared. When it comes to racism, I sadly have an abundance of stories that I could share. And uh, this dates back to middle school where I was in, um, we lived in a predominantly white um, suburb neighborhood, suburban neighborhood. And um, I was a sixth grader. And at lunch one day, I had, a, there was a student, a, a young man who called me the N-word. And I initially thought I didn't hear him correctly. So I asked him basically, what did you say? Um, he said it again, there were a crowd of students around. And so we engaged in a physical altercation. I mean, that was my very first, um, the very first time I had to deal with blatant racism. I was 11 years old and I had been called something I had never ever had to deal with before. So that was um, a, a, a um, situation that stays in my mind forever. Um, even in my professional career, I've dealt with um, parents and I, I've only ever taught at um, title schools, you know, low SES schools. So it's not something where you expect parents to, um, to exhibit racism, but I, 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 I've dealt with that before. Most recently, last year, I had a parent who um, contacted our principal and then went to even the, you know, the central administration building because she was adamant that I was a racist because I was talking about Ruby Bridges and slavery and um, just, I guess, topics that she felt weren't um, 
important to discuss. So not by any other actions, except for trying to educate my students, I was called a racist. Um, and of course, you know, my, my administration supported me, but it, it's just something that I feel um, has never really gone away. It's an area where people of color, it, it's still a very sensitive subject because we deal with it in so many different ways, right? Blatant, um, not as upfront, but with, you know, um, systemic racism where, um, you know, things are just different. Things are just harder. It, it's, it's a lot difficult being a person of color in America still in 2022. Thank you, Lakeisha. Is racism a systemic problem today? And I'm asking a question now about your views on whether uh, you think racism exists at a systemic level at all. It's hard to for me to understand the uh, reason you know, behind all of the issues. But the thing that strikes me as the systemic issue that has the biggest disparate impact along racial lines is the quality of our schools themselves. And when I uh, work on these issues, which you know, New Mexico, if you look up the education statistics, uh, unfortunately we do tend to uh, lay far at the bottom of those results. And uh, you know, I, I really think, and, and there's big Eastern cities and big places with inner city minority populations that have school districts that are failing. Some of them are either underfunded or the money is kind of wasted away in different ways. And I, I'm not saying it's built along racist lines. I think it's, there's a lot of issues. And I think that's the unique thing about systemic racism. And it's, it reflects differently along racial lines, even if individual actors aren't necessarily racist within the system. So uh, definitely the educational systems that we have in place do fail too many minorities and uh, really create problems in our society. And I think that's something that needs to be addressed uh, very aggressively and thoroughly to really heal some of the divisions in our society and improve uh, equality and equity in, in racial outcomes. Thank you, Paul. Ty, could you share your thoughts on whether you think systemic racism exists in our country? And, and if so, could you give an example? Uh, I'm going to say, uh, to an extent, I'm going to say no. And the reason why I say that is because I can't find one Black person right now that isn't doing something that a white person has done. Like, everything that white people are doing, Black people are doing. So now, I know that we talked about the school system. Trust me, school systems in Chicago, trust me, I get it. <laughs> when they talk about, you know, there's definitely something systemic there, which to an extent, I can agree to that. But there were teachers that were there who heart was in the right place, right? So what I mean by that, we didn't, I'm just like, just from what I do right now, currently, I know that there are some teachers, they, they got tenure, they're there just to punch in and punch out. They'll sit there and be on their phones while the kids do anything, whatever. But you had legit teachers that really cared. They really pushed, they wanted the best for you. So what I would do now, I would find certain teachers and would talk with them like, is this actually really what you want to do? Because teachers, they really like to teach. They don't just want to teach just to be clocking in and clocking out. They really are concerned about those individual student lives. So whether you were in a school that's like the utmost popular Ivy League, like pre-Ivy League type schools versus the schools that just terrible system, terrible in the public, downtrodden. But if you got teachers that are there, 
that actually can encourage and spark those kids to be pushed to do things that they have no idea they can do, that makes a huge difference no matter what school it's in. And I see this playing out right now. So as far as it being a, a systemic thing, especially from something that can keep Blacks from doing anything, no, because we're doing everything that white people are, even up to being a president. So, Ty, thank you for that. Uh, Lakeisha, I'd uh, like to come to you now. Racism is absolutely a systemic problem. Um, let's be honest, the United States was built on the backs of slaves. Racism has 100% a part of that. The fact that it's incre in increasingly harder for people of color to receive adequate healthcare, adequate schools, education, um, pay, e equal pay, all of these are examples of how systemic racism still plays a part in the day-to-day -day lives of people of color. Emily, I'm going to come to you. What about your thoughts on whether systemic racism exists in our country? Yeah, I mean, I think what I was um, thinking about is kind of what Paul was, along lines of what Paul was saying. I think well, anecdotally and personal experience, right, that maybe the kind of like interpersonal racism, right, day-to-day -day racism is, right, lessening in our country. Um, I think we have a very racist past in this country that has created inequalities that still exist today that like need to be more aggressively addressed the way that, you know, kind of Paul was hinting at. And so like, for example, in my class, we're learning about the history of housing segregation. Um, and so the housing segregation laws, right, don't exist in this country anymore, but created very segregated cities that we still see today. And I like live and breathe that personally. So like I live in Boyle Heights, which was an area that was redlined, right, by the HOLC and by the FHA, um, and that was forced, right, people of color were forced in these neighborhoods and not given home loans in certain parts of Los Angeles, um, and freeways cut through my neighborhood because they put freeways in redlined neighborhoods, and I'm right next to Commerce and Vernon um, because they put factories that polluted, right, the neighboring areas next to redlined neighborhoods, and so I had to have lead from my soil, like, removed from my house, right, um, and all of my neighbors and, right, all of our neighborhood um, had to experience that. And so although today, right, it, opportunities, right, everyone might have maybe equal opportunities to access all of the same positions, resources, et cetera, like people of color today still live in neighborhoods that, right, were formerly redlined neighborhoods that have poorer schools, higher pollution, less green space, less access to healthy grocery stores, right? And so like, that's just one example, right, of how like we still see these effects today. So I think it's less about like opportunity and less about like personal, right, like ex interactions of racism and more about like these structural issues that, right, maybe like we still just really need to address. Uh, thanks, Emily. Uh, Curtis? Kind of go along the line that Ty says. I don't think it's a systemic in society. I think it's systemic in the rhetoric of the politics that are playing out in today's world. Um, New Mexico being the state it is, critical race theory has been a hot topic for over a year and a half. I know Paul's foundation has done a ton of stuff with it and looking at it, but I think the rhetoric of it is America has always been created as a melting pot of ideas and cultures. And trying to remind people of that. Look at all the great things that have happened in this country because of the melting pot we've become. And I think it's more ingrained in the political realm of this than it is with most of the other 
items. I mean, everybody gives higher education a bad name because they're liberal institutions and those types of things. And again, that could be considered a political entity in our country. But I think it's more along the lines of it's serving a purpose right now because the divide in this country has been created for the last two political cycles. And I think it's more along those lines where it's becoming systemic because it's serving a purpose for the political needs as opposed to looking how we're servicing kids. Because I had friends that taught in Chicago schools. I, I totally relate to what you're talking about. I've had friends that taught in New York City schools. Some teachers punch in. But if you go out into rural America or go into other cities, even like in Emily's, you have teachers that really care about what's best for kids, regardless of what color their skin is. Next, I asked my guests to talk about race and racism and what should be discussed in the classroom. Race and racism are obviously two very different things. And I'm, you know, I, I hear a lot of people, I think on all sides of the issue, say things like race is a, uh, is a social construct. And you know, because we are truly all part of the same human family and that the differences between us are relatively trivial. Yeah, so like Paul was saying, um, I actually started out in my ethnic studies classes with this idea of race is not biological, it's a social social construct. So we talk a little bit about the science, right? So that essentially like genetically humans are more the same than they are different, right? And that there's no gene um, for each racial group. And that's always like below students' minds. Like they don't believe that that's the case. Um, so that's a good like myth busting starting out point for us. But then we talk about how, uh, and then we, oh, and then to kind of get into this idea of race as a social construct and how the way we've labeled people based off skin tone and race and the names we've used has changed over time. I actually show them census surveys starting from like 1790 all the way up through like 2020. And they look at like all the different like names that people use to identify race, right? And the check boxes that were available to different people throughout history to kind of see like, okay, like depending on what's happening in society, right? We have, we have constructed different ideas and names for kind of our skin tone, our, um, our racial appearance. But then I think it's also important to end with like, yes, like we're all the same genetically, but like race is still a very powerful part of our identity or in our society, right? So like, what does it mean, right? Like can skin be something that connects us to our heritage? Is it something that builds community? Is it something that gives you know, people privilege or makes them experience discrimination? So we kind of get into either the positive empowering rate ways that race can be a part of our identity, but also the ways that it can you know, create right harm or negative experiences for people. Thank you, Emily. And Ty, your thoughts about um, the role of race in the school curriculum. What should students learn about race as far as school go, I would say nothing. <laughs> but, um, and why should or shouldn't this be part of curriculum? Because it's not important. Now what, I'm, now, what I'm saying this for is this. Give an example. My son's growing up. They had friends. Whenever they played with their friends, never once was it taught in my house. That's your white friend, or that's your Latino friend, or that's your Mexican friend, or that's your Indian friend. My sons only knew them as my friends. So whenever they would say, Dad, can I go out and play with my friend? I'll say, well, who? They'll say, Tommy. I know who Tommy was by name. So in my house, my sons, they never, they, even like right now in today's condition, they're just blown out of their mind. Like, why are people making this skin thing an uh, issue? We don't get it because they never were taught it. So as far as it being like taught in school, as far as I would say no, because it's, it's, uh, it's kind of, you know, touchy because people got their own home experiences. They got things that they probably got philosophized by their parents about what race is or how important race is. So then to go to school 
and get it taught by teachers who might be getting that from a book of that person's perspective themselves, it can cause a lot of just turmoil that we see going on right now where that just seems to be a huge focus and it shouldn't be because the color of our skin doesn't it has nothing to do with who we are as individuals. So that's my take on that. Lakeisha, I'd love to hear from you. Race and racism, uh, at least in an educational sense, does have a place in the academic setting. If we are not teaching all truth, honest parts of history, right, then what are we doing? How do we help students to learn and, and to encourage them to do better and to make better decisions moving forward for society if we don't show them the hurtful, ugly part of history that came before them so that they can learn? I do not at, at no point believe that I should, that a teacher or an educator should um, talk about non-developmentally appropriate topics to students. But you can present history and cover race and racism in America in developmentally appropriate ways. And, and of course, that's through books, through articles, in a factual-based way to where we're educating our students and letting them know these are things that truly occur. These were racial groups or ethnic groups who were hurt by decisions of others. And these are things that we can do to ensure that we don't ever go back to that place again. At this point, I wanted to give everyone a chance to ask a question of one another. What did you hear from someone else that you're curious about? Paul, I see your hand going up. So you want to raise a question. I'd like to ask Ty uh, if he finds his attitudes are similar to other African-American friends and family members or whoever uh, that he interacts with. And what, if any, if, assume, if that's not the case, what life experiences or specific things that happened throughout his 40 years uh, caused him to have the views that he does as opposed to what we kind of we see in the media and in a lot of contexts that I would say are very different from the way you've expressed things here this might sound funny to you guys but this actually I, I went and did a TED talk back in October and this literally is something that changed my life okay I had these older relatives that would always tell us the stories about like a scary monster or something right they would tell us about these things called like these uh you know hikamashikas that live in the basement and if you go near the basement at nighttime, these things will get out and they will get you and grab you and pull you down and, you know, and do something terrible to you, right? The house that we stayed in in the project area, the only way you can get something to drink, you had to come down the stairs and go past this basement door to get to the kitchen to get something to drink. I would see the kitchen, but my mind went instantly to that basement door, those hikamashikas that's downstairs in the basement. If I go past that door, they're going to grab my legs and pull me down. I did that for, I cannot tell you guys how long, afraid to death to get to my goal because I was so thirsty, but what they told me got in my head so much, it stopped me from getting there. So one day I just couldn't take it anymore. I had to find out the truth. So I walked towards the kitchen. I actually went down in the basement, didn't flick the light or anything, went down the basement, got on the cold floor, just stood there and I waited for something to come and get me. I waited. My heart rate was flying. I was sweating like crazy. Guess what happened? Nothing. So what I'm saying that for is this, a lot of things that we've been told in the ghetto or in the hood about things that we couldn't achieve as black people because there was some thing out there called the, the white man that kept us from getting there. I had to go and do it. 
So that's what got me where I am right now. I question every single thing that I've ever been told. And when if, if it was a lie, I pissed it off to the side and I got kept going. So I didn't know there was a two minute thing on the, on the answer to the question. <laughs> no, it was it was, okay. it was very close, Ty. So thank you for that. Um, another hand. Yeah, I actually had a question for Emily. Uh, I think the, I forget where grade that you said you taught was it. High school. Okay, high school. Okay, have you ever had any of them come back? I don't know how long you've been teaching, but have you ever had any of them come back years down the road and just, oh my God, you know, Ms. Waldron, I loved you. This one time you told me X, Y, and Z, and that was like a changing moment in my life. If so, can you share like a, some particular story or something? So I've only been teaching for, is this my fifth year, fourth year? So I definitely haven't had a ton of students like coming back years or right later. What I do is I do end of semester surveys and that's what really has like kept me going in terms of feeling motivated to teach like what I want to teach. There was one at the end of last semester that a student wrote and it was just like, it was one of those moments where, you know, after a very rough semester, you know, it was like, and these last two years have been the hardest of, you know, my professional career. Um, felt like, okay, at least like I'm doing what I, what I should be doing. Cause students are, you know, hearing what I'm trying to put out there. Um, a student wrote in their end of year survey, I usually ask some question, like, did you learn something that you found valuable or like, what did you take away from this class that you found valuable? Um, and the student wrote, I learned the struggles and injustice acts against people who look different. And I'm glad I learned their struggles. So now I look at them and I see the people who fought for their freedom. And I just thought Ooh. that was like so beautiful because wow. like, it's like, they're like acknowledging that like people who are not like me, like I learned about their struggles, but then it ends with this, like, like now I see like how, you know, their communities fought right for them and like are now, you know, and so it was just like, that's the hope, right? That like people are seeing other people's backgrounds and experiences, right? That they're being, right? Um, that's like being brought to their attention. But lastly, like I said, right? There's this idea of kind of like radical hope, right? That I think ethnic studies needs to have where it's like in the face of problems, in the face of struggle, in the face of, right? Um, anything our country is experiencing, how can we look at um, how people, you know, fight for their communities and, and try to create positive change, so. Yeah, these like end of semester surveys usually end up, there's at least a couple couple moments in there that give me some hope that I'm doing something that, that students find valuable. That's awesome. Now to bring things to a close, I ask my guests to say what they took away, what they learned from the conversation and whether the conversation might lead them to act or think differently going forward. I think for me, the biggest thing I'm taking away from this is these conversations need to continue. Um, being able to hold these open, honest conversations and understanding where kids are coming from. That's what really has to happen is we need to keep these conversations going, not only with the kids, but the parents too. Yeah, I, I was expecting a lot more kind of uh, divisiveness. It just, it gives me hope that we're as a country still moving in the right direction on racial issues. It felt like we were and had been for decades uh, until recent times and then we've had some of these big instances uh, where there have been very high profile cases that uh, have spurred I think a lot of racial reckoning and kind of uh, angst but uh, it gives me uh, maybe some hope that we are still as a country moving beyond 
I don't want to say navel gazing, but the kind of obsession that we have, because I've, I've traveled, I've lived all over the, in different places around the world, not all over the world, unfortunately, but I, I think America is a, uh, you know, a country that's dealt with race and succeeded in many, many ways. And that doesn't mean there's not issues of racism, racial disparities that need to be addressed and redressed. But uh, I think Americans, if they travel overseas, realize that they are uh, not nearly the racist hellhole that uh, we often ascribe to ourselves. So it gives me uh, that optimism. So thank you. I mean, I think what resonated with me from the beginning of the conversation was how everyone had really similar goals or outcomes, right? And so I think like, how can we ground, right, these, um, these perspectives and these discussions in kind of having similar goals, right, for our communities, our schools, our students, right, our children. Um, and so I think like, where can we bridge the gap between, right, uh, this idea of wanting to get to a shared goal and then write some perspectives and really like truly lived personal experiences like those of Ty and other people who feel like this is really not a problem, right? Like this, like this is not an issue in my life or I don't want it to shape my life, right? This idea of like race and racism, like I don't want this to be a defining factor. And then how do we bridge that with people who feel like it is a really strong defining factor, right? That like feel like they have really experienced racism either on an interpersonal level or more institutional level. I think if people will listen to us, I think teachers who are teaching history and teaching ethnic studies need to be like very vocal and clear about what we're doing and how we're doing it. Because I think other people are leading the conversation and a lot of misinformation in terms of like how this is being taught um, or um, you know, what we're teaching is being spread by people who are not the teachers themselves, which is really frustrating. We need to kind of be advocates for ourselves if, if people are willing to listen. This is something that I've been uh, talking about for quite maybe over a year now is that I just told, I tell the people that I mentor and even like the adults that I talk with is that what we just did right here right now is something that uh, all United States need to see. You know, they can see, I mean, you can, I mean, this whole conversation was a great conversation. We all gave our perspective. You can tell, even though we didn't sit there and go, no, no, this is why I, de I disagree with you on this is because no, we, there were some disagreements in this conversation, but look how we handled it civilly. We didn't respond with yelling and screaming and calling each other names. It's just that you stated the way you saw it and what you, what you felt. I stated the way I saw things and how I felt. And if we disagreed on it, we like, we move on. I think the biggest thing is, as Ty pointed out, um, and all of us, you can agree to disagree and be able to move forward from those agreements and become better from it instead of keep going back to the lowest denominator or keep falling back on this. This has been a very pleasant conversation among all of us, even though all of us have distinctly different perspectives on it. And I think that's the thing. As long as we keep tearing, it, tearing us apart, there's never going to be a solution. My greatest takeaway was that while I appreciate the opportunity to have conversations, there's still much more work to be done. I think it is important for us to engage in dialogue and, and to be respectful, right? But dialogue, respectful conversations is simply not enough. We need action. If we continue to say, okay, I'm not gonna talk about race, I don't see color, I'm not going to engage in those conversations, what are we saying to kids when we don't have these honest conversations, when we don't admit that 
there has been turmoil to specific racial groups and we are still experiencing turmoil. And instead of addressing these issues, we choose just to not talk about it. That's not okay. It, it is just not okay. Um, I do believe that having conversations like this must continue, but more important than the conversations are action, change. And that's going to happen when we unite our voices together and hold our elected officials accountable, have conversations with parents who feel like we're not doing the very best for their children each and every day that they're in our classrooms. After our conversation ended, I went back and listened to it a few times so I could figure out what my takeaways were. I have a couple of them. First, I was intrigued by the fact that we had a civil and thoughtful conversation, essentially about critical race theory and whether its core idea that race and systemic racism have played a major role in America's history should be part of the curriculum. There was no yelling, no incendiary charges like the ones by Senator Cruz that acknowledging and talking about racism will turn us against each other that critical race theory is a lie and, as he says, is every bit as racist as a Klansman in white sheets. Nor did anybody in our group echo anything close to the charge by the parent we heard earlier at a school board meeting that textbooks are filled with communist, racially divisive ideology. In our conversation with conservative and liberal parents and educators, all except one could point to examples of systemic racism. Even Ty Smith, who initially said he didn't think it existed, conceded that it might be present in our school systems. So how did we avoid the vitriol, the shouting, and the blatant mischaracterizations of critical race theory? Probably by avoiding the term itself, a term like so many others batted about in the culture wars that are instant conflict triggers but also by getting people to share their own experiences and perspectives without them trying to convince others that they're right or wrong. We simply listened and tried to understand one another. My second thought about the conversation was prompted by something Lakeisha said at the end. She said conversations like this must continue, but she thought action and change were more important if we truly want to eradicate racism. That sentiment stirred up a recurring fear I've had about this whole Courageous Conversations project. Was she just being polite and saying that these conversations should continue? Might her concern be that having well-mannered conversations like this, where people get to say what they think without rebuttal or challenge, just gives oxygen to bad arguments? Do these conversations simply give the impression that all positions are equally valid? That if we can all just get along and be civil, everything will be fine? Now, I think Lakeisha is right. Action is needed. If you don't like lawmakers or school board members banning teaching about race and racism, then you have to take action. You have to try to persuade them to change their minds through honest arguments, or you vote them out. 
But this is why conversations like this must continue, not just on podcasts, but in our living rooms, in the public square, in school board meetings, and in the classroom. Honest, respectful conversation is action. People really do learn. They often set aside the histrionics and the blatantly illogical, dishonest, and ill-informed arguments. And they open themselves up to different ways of viewing the world. People change. So I went back and listened to the question that Ty Smith posed to Emily Waldron, who is the white high school teacher from Southern California who teaches ethnic studies. Remember what Ty said earlier, that he didn't think schools should be teaching anything about race and racism. But something pretty amazing happened near the end of the conversation. Ty asked Emily if any of her former students ever came back to tell her that her teaching had made a difference for them. Ty sounded genuinely curious, and it didn't sound like there was any ill will behind his question. In response, Emily read a message she had gotten from a former student. The student had written, I learned the struggles and unjust acts against people who look different. I'm glad I learned the struggles, so now I look at them and see the people who fought for their freedom. As Emily read this, you could hear Ty say, wow. And then when she was done, he said, awesome. So this is what I think. People want to be heard. They don't want to be shamed. Listening to others doesn't give oxygen or validate their opinions. It makes them feel that we value them as people, even if they know we may not agree with them. When that happens, they, we, open up. Maybe that's what happened with Ty.